Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong and I'm joined here today by Dr. Ahmed El Husini. Hi Ahmed. Hi Adam. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good, so Dr. Ahmed is one of the clinicians and the aesthetic trainers here at Skin Viva. And I'm very excited to have you on the show today, Ahmed. Thank you, me too. Um, so I thought it would be useful to have a little bit of a chat about your journey into aesthetics and what your other work is. Right, uh, Adam, thank you for that intro. Uh, well, uh, I started doing aesthetic uh, medicine uh, a couple of years ago when one of my colleagues, uh, who originally was a GP that trained uh, tra- alongside me, my background is I'm an anesthetist, I work in a hospital environment. Mm-hmm. So he set up his own practice and uh, he, he was doing well and I was always intrigued by aesthetics. So he just invited me to spend a day with him and that was it. It really, I really enjoyed the day, I enjoyed treatments I enjoyed the consultation which was a little bit different than what I was used to doing as a hospital doctor mm. and that was it I signed up for my first course and uh, I never looked back since then okay I mean you strike me as someone that has a lot of not only practical knowledge but you've got a very good theoretical knowledge as well um, there's a there's a great sort of academic grounding as well to your knowledge um, I always feel safe with Dr. Ahmed I always <laughs> he's, you're my go-to guy Thank <laughs> where, you. where does that come from Adam, you, you, hear, you hear a lot of things and, and this is how I do it, this is how it works for me. And sometimes you think, that's fine, and that may be okay for you in the environment you work with mm. and in the way you're used to learning and doing things. But is it evident? Do you have any evidence to back what you're doing? Show me the evidence. Show me why this is right and why this is wrong. And that to me is the selling point. Mm-hmm. So recently I've been thinking, we. You know, most of us as aesthetic uh, clinicians use botulinum toxin in our practice. And you know, there's more than one brand in the UK market. Mm-hmm. L- lots of questions. And I then remember very well after my, f- my foundation course, and I started doing a few cases. And I remember after a few cases, I had more questions than answers. So I thought maybe a good start would be let's look at the evidence, let's look at the literature. What's the latest? What's, what's the recommendations? And this has made me explore a few papers, which I think would be nice if we can discuss them today. That would be really good. So perhaps, I mean, one of the papers is labelled uh, Myths and Realities of Botox. So that would be great to explore that. But before we do that, um, let's talk a little bit about um, highlight of your career. Just like to get, to get the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Yes, yes. My main highlight in my career really was when I got the opportunity to to teach aesthetics because I've always had an interest in teaching in, 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 in my hospital work and this really was a career highlight for me because to be a good teacher you have to be a good practitioner you can't be a good teacher without you know practicing mediocre um, and you really have to up your game it really makes you a better clinician being able to I teach. agree and that really has helped being a highlight of my career yeah it, it pushes you doesn't it you, you can't blag your way through teaching a hundred percent not it pushes you to sort of learn, learn absolutely stuff, and you basically. believe it or not till this day I still prepare when I know I'm teaching on a course the next day I mm. still prepare the night before it just keeps mm. you sharp and ready absolutely well, um, my highlight, well, I wouldn't say it's the highlight of my career, but maybe the highlight of my week was finding out that um, I've got a fan club. Oh. Yeah, yeah, believe it or not. Um, so I went into the 
at the waiting room the other day and uh, called in my next clients. And one of the other ladies that was sat there went, oh, it's him. <laughs> and I looked at her and she went, oh, I've seen you on those videos. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? She went, yes, I watch you at night when I'm relaxing. <laughs> those videos are hilarious, Adam. Yeah, so, uh, oh, my, my funny videos, yeah. You yeah, like them, Ahmed. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, you're not the only one who likes them. So, um, yeah, my, my fan club has begun. There's only one member, but let's try, <laughs> you're getting let, let's try and grow this. <laughs> Uh, right, so let, let's talk about this paper. So tell us about the journal that it's in and, and what's it called. Right. What I really particularly like about this play, paper is it's, it's new, right? But remember, Botox came about in the 1980s. You know, this is not a long time. Uh, and, I, you know, I was reading through one of the papers and, you know, one of the first comments the authors got when they, they said they're going to be injecting botulinum toxin in the faces was you're going to be injecting what and you know it created a lot of upheaval then but this paper is dated 2017 Great. so it's really up to date mm -hmm. it's from the journal for the american society of for dermatological surgery surgery yeah it has a number of co-authors and i feel it's really good paper okay um, and, it, and i believe it goes through several different myths it's it, it goes through a you know the paper starts broadly, you know, reflecting on the increased use of botulinum toxin right now, you know, over 10 million treatments in America on its own. And that that number is, I think, reflected in the Europe and in the Far East as well, mm -hmm. worldwide. There are three main botulinum toxin formulations available, more or less worldwide. We all know the original Botox, which was first it's still the most widely researched the most quoted in studies and the one that has the most medicinal license don't forget it, this is still a medicine and it does have its medicinal license which is a little bit different from the aesthetic licenses mm -hmm. um, the other product uh, that's also available is azalore and recently bocature has been added these are remember these are botulinum toxin type a there's another serotype which is type b it's available in the in the uk market uh, commonly called uh, myoblock okay it doesn't have any aesthetic license okay but it seems to be the kind of product that people sometimes use when they feel they have primary non-responders that that botulinum toxin has not type a has not had any effect on them so was the type B one created for medicinal use, like for use in medicine for spasticity? Or that, that they were originally right. in the A seventy in the seventies originally used for strabismus to, for the extraocular muscles, and it was an incidental discovery that it improved the, the lines. lines and wrinkles. Yeah. And the first patient was uh, someone who came back asking for it to be injected in the forehead mm -hmm. because she felt that improves the lines and. Botox was born. Right. Okay. Um, so we know about those three, the three main uh, type A botulinum toxin, and there's the type B myoblock. Um, so let, let's go through the, the paper then. So, myth number one. Well, the commonest question are the products the same? Is there one product that you can categorically say is better than the other? Mm. Um, what, what would you say is the, the current? Um, uh, thoughts around that if, if you were to have a conversation with 10 practitioners in a room a mixture of nurses beauticians doctors yeah. dentists what, what would be the 
general consensus. Look, Adam, you know, I don't have strong feelings about this. Everyone would have their... You just said you have a fan club, yeah? There would be people that just want to go to Adam because they like Adam. They feel comfortable. (laughs) Okay. But it's it's someone. It's a start. There may be others wanting to come to me Mm. because they they feel more comfortable with me for their own reasons. And I feel the same with the three products. Yeah. The active ingredient is the same in all. There is differences in the manufacturing process and in the uh, this and in the proteins that are complexing, although Bocature is free from that complex uh, complex proteins. And in the assays, their doses are not equipotent. Bocature and Botox may be similar, but there's still some debate about that. Mm. Azurer is a little bit different. Some studies quote a ratio of three to one, some two and a half to one, two to one. But what this paper is challenging is it's challenging this myth that these products are different. And they yield different results. Absolutely. They're trying, their argument is the studies are not standardized. The -hmm. studies are a little bit weak. And those for those, they are equal. They are this, they're more or less the same. Okay. But the difference in the muscle you're injecting, the difference in the manufacturing process, make these changes. Some people, I mean, this is uh, more hearsay, but they feel that some products are better for younger clients, for example. I, I do hear one of the one of the products people often quote as being you know better for younger. And why do you think that might be? I've heard that same uh, comment as well. Perhaps a younger client, by the nature of being younger, would uh, you know, would prefer a more denser block uh, because her skin elasticity is good. So they prefer a more frozen kind of look. Mm. And a particular drug uh, product where you inject more units, mm-hmm. it gives you a much more denser block, and that may be favourable for some. But we're saying here that dose for dose, they're exactly equal. So why has some, why has one of them become a bit more? Why has it got this reputation for being better? For, that's what I struggle to understand. Is it that perhaps the dosing that we're using as standard for one of the products is the the doses are not the doses. We haven't got the ratio correct. Yeah, and I feel we are injecting perhaps a little bit more of one product yes. and a little bit less of another product, and sense. hence the differences between the products. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so the, this first, the first point they're making is that there's no obvious difference between them clinically, the results. The, that, that paper is definitely saying there isn't. Mm-hmm. There, there is obviously scope for more studies, studies yeah. but until we get those studies 100% foolproof, if you like, yes. we can't make that comment. Okay, interesting. Right, so next point in the, in the journal. The next point, the, the next point to argue is the diffusion. You, I'm sure you've heard it as well. A particular product diffuses more than the other, mm. and perhaps you've got to be a bit more careful with this product. Inject uh, more superficial, uh, higher up in the forehead, and so on, t- because it diffuses more. We're being very PC here, aren't we? We're, <laughs> we're being careful not to mention names. Oh, we're okay to mention, aren't we? Um, absolutely. I have. I have. Come on, let, let, let's let's talk names then. So, w- which one do is considered to diffuse more? Azalor. Okay, there we go, we have it. <laughs> there you go. And people think that it diffuses possibly more in that it's, it's a smaller molecule mm-hmm. and that may explain why it diffuses more. 
Now let's let's tackle this diffusion debate. There's a difference, Adam, between spread, diffusion, and migration. Oh, okay. Right. So when you all these products have to be administered by injection, and that influences the spread. So if you inject a big volume, forcefully, quickly through a syringe, you'll have more spread. Okay. Inject slowly, a small volume, you'll have less spread. Yeah. So that's basic. So that's the spread. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you want more spread. Inject quickly. With that, obviously that can make it a bit more painful injection. Mm. You want to inject slower. That maybe you you have more control over the spread. But the other factor okay. is diffusion. Yeah. And that may be dependent on the molecule size and so on and other processes including blood flow, muscle mass, number of receptors. That's very important because one of the arguments in this paper in this paper is it's Botox and the spread is dependent on the number of receptors available in a muscle and that's influenced by muscle mass and so on. And genetics. And, and genetics and so on. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, when we're referring to Botox, we actually mean botulinum toxin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, they're saying that, you know, using electromyographic studies, the spread can be a little bit variable, but it's up to three centimeters for all the products. Mm -hmm. it, depend it depends on your volume, the amount, yeah. how fast you inject. So, there's lots of variables. There's so many confounding factors, isn't it? Plus, there is also... The, uh, the the feeling that azelot perhaps spreads a bit more is because of not the not the botulinum toxin molecule yeah. but the protein molecule it's a smaller molecule okay and that's why perhaps that could explain why it may possibly spread more but again that's only th through hearsay um, rumors but actually when they've looked into studies there there is zero evidence as of yet that is correct yeah okay that's really interesting so next myth this is great I'm, I'm learning lots here as always on these podcasts it's a very interesting paper adam mm. the next myth is about antibodies okay now we've all heard this this mm. patient has been having botox for some time or azelor or bocature and she's developed antibodies yeah i need to change yeah what are these and they call them neutralizing antibodies and the the papers talk about two two kinds of non-responders primary non-responders who the Botox never ever had any effect and they they have a, there is genetic issues with these people yeah and the other are secondary non-responders that initially responded well but gradually over some time may perhaps become the treatment doesn't the, typically the duration will be three to four months and they're saying they're coming back at six weeks four weeks with movement so do we know anything well first of all have you have you ever come across a primary non-responder myself personally not but i am aware in our clinic because we are a big clinic here and we see numerous and we're more than one clinician but i am aware that we have one or two people that we inject with myoblock which is the botulinum toxin type mm. b because they are a primary non-responder okay is, are there any theories as to why that is it, it's their the natural antibodies against botulinum toxin it's as simple as that it's yeah, something like that yes okay. there's a genetic predisposition that makes them not respond to the botulinum toxin type a for the secondary non-responders do we do we know if there's any because i've always been told that it's you can develop this resistance if there's too much exposure within a 12-week period that is, is that what the manufacturers advise okay now these primary the 
neutralizing antibodies have been studying more on people having Botox for medicinal uses, where they typically inject much higher doses, much higher than what we're injecting for our aesthetic treatments. And even then, on those cases where they, they did immune assays and could quantify those antibodies, they were not enough to explain why they were not responding to the toxin. Okay. They, they, so it's still vague, but their feeling is that you can't blame it on a neutralizing antibody. But, def- but what can we do to minimize a chance of a patient having coming back after a few weeks saying the treatment is worn off or mm. my movement has come back? So they said avoiding large doses, avoiding frequent injections, uh, avoiding having more than one injector. You know, all of these factors can can make. You know, can have a, can explain why you're not. You're not uniform in 12 weeks every time you have a treatment. Mm, okay. Uh, but also why you might develop some potential resistance, or is this just about people that are coming sooner, that, where it's worn off? Pe- people are coming sooner. People are all, Their expectations are high. They associate any movement with failure of treatment, mm. but we know that the, the treatment will gradually wear off anyway, and movement doesn't mean, you know, We've moved on now from the concept of frozen, where yeah. we're trying to, especially with the more mature, mature. clients, and so not the young, where some movement is necessary to yeah. help us maintain positions of the eyebrow and so on. Yeah. It's all about modulation now rather than frozen. Okay, Modulation is the key. And with modulation, I expect some movement, but one that's associated with a more youthful look. So possibly when we're ascribing people to being these non-responders or having developed resistance, actually maybe it it isn't that at all. Possibly it is, like you say, it's a different injector, a different dose. Dose, volume is also a factor. You know, all of these, you know, know, can make you think, am I injecting the right dose Mm -hmm. for the treatment that, that that I want to achieve? Yeah. You may simply just need more quantity and at the right depth i suppose the right depth is also another factor um okay that might actually take us on to the volume of injection because i know some people um, actually use different dilutions for botox can you tell me a bit about that that's correct adam and i i have you know over the years you've toyed with it yeah i've toyed with different volumes and um, I'm still at a bit of a loss on what's perfect and what's not perfect but then again we're dealing with patients they're not all the same. There's variability. There is no one formula that fits everyone, and we have to adapt. There may be instances where I want a large volume in, for example, areas like the forehead where it's wide, and you know, a little bit of a spread will be beneficial. When we're referring to volume, then we're actually talking to the amount of dilutant, dilutant as well. That yeah. is correct. What the manufacturers typically recommend 2.5 mils for 100 uh, units of Botox, and it's similar for Bocature. Yes. The, I am aware some people use volumes like 2 mils. Some other people prefer volumes like 3 mils. So it's, it's variable. But there are certainly other areas in the face where I want to even go further down, I, I, where I want to dilute in 1 mil. For example, lower face, where you want to target specific muscle groups and avoid adjacent muscles like mentalis. You know, you'd, you'd really want to be specific in, the, in, in your volumes there. 
So you would use a smaller dilutant than Absolutely. That one. Perhaps Absolutely. one mil in 100 units. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But, the, the, but remember, when you dilute in two, the question will always be, so are you injecting still two units or a slightly inje- are you or are you injecting two and a half units? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's another conversation. How much the dose? Okay. But volume is dependent on areas. There is no one volume that is superior. Two point five is what's recommended, but there are instances where you should you can use one. You can use two, you can use three. You've played around a little bit with some of these smaller volumes then. Um, So you've made a higher concentration per mil of of dilutant. What's your general feeling? I know it's different from client to client, but are you getting a general feeling that this is working better for you? In all honesty, two mils works well for me. It just gives me that extra amount of toxin to to achieve better longevity. I get nice results with it. Good accuracy. Good accuracy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not too concerned about spread. I'm not, you know, I get good results with two mils. I mm-hmm. find it works well for me. Mm, okay, because that was the the next myth in the paper, wasn't it, about the the volume of injection? Absolutely. Absolutely. What are they saying on that next point? Then? Absolutely. It, it, it's all dependent on patient assessment. Mm-hmm. Because remember, you may have someone who's been nowadays. We get them a lot. The people who've been having Botox frequently over the last year and the muscle has atrophied and become there's less muscle mass so you certainly lose you need less volume less dose yeah uh, so all of this has you know has an influence on how much volume you need so we shouldn't just standardize the doses and think um four units four units two units there around the crow's feet for example we, we have to look carefully and we have Absolutely. to take into consideration age, muscle atrophy, skin type. Yes, yes. that may work for the majority of patients, yeah. but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, you, 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 can, you, just, you will only stick to this. It's yeah. a good starting point, but you certainly need to tailor the dose to patient assessment. Yeah. Because remember, there's another factor that we need to think of, volume loss. It's not all about muscle. You know, when we look at a yeah. line and wrinkle, and we we the, the, we, sh- we have to answer two questions: Is what's causing my problem a muscle overuse, or n- or just necessarily the muscle action, or is it volume loss, mm. or a combination, yeah. and deal with both? You know, I read this in the papers, and it's it was more or less I was taught. It's uh, the general feeling is when you look at a face. You split it into one third, upper, middle, and lower, mm. and it was always like toxin for the upper face. Uh, fill the mid face and relax, and fill the lower face, and that may work again for a majority of patients. But nowadays, it's tailored mm. to what I see because don't forget, after you assess whether it's the m- muscle that's the issue or the volume loss, you need to look at the skin. Mm, absolutely, yeah? yeah. Poor skin with loss of elasticity will yield will yield poor results. Yeah. So two points to make there. So we are seeing more, or I'm seeing that we're treating more clients now with filler in the upper face, including forehead filler and even temples because of reasons you've just said. Um, But also when I think to those people that have had Botox for many years, I look on their record and they've been with us for eight years or something. Sometimes when I'm doing particularly the frown area, when I ask them to frown, first of all, there's hardly any movement, but it's also very flat. Because I like to bunch up that procerus muscle with my thumb and index. Try and bunch it up. There's almost nothing there. 
So on reflection, perhaps a smaller dose might work just as well. 100%, 100%. And, and lessen the risk of, of complications. Definitely. So you have to take muscle mass into consideration mm. and think beyond muscle, what am I doing about the volume loss? And you may reach a stage where you, you need to replace that volume with filler. So rather than just blindly saying, yep, so you're here for your three areas, perhaps we should take a step back and have a global approach yeah. to the addressing a good holistic aging. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be good at this, you need to study aging. You mm. need to understand how aging affects the face, how it affects the skin, the muscles, the fat pads, and then address the problem. Great. Okay. And going back to the paper then, any, any other one another myth that the paper wanted to tackle is you know you've all heard the advice uh, don't lie flat for a couple of hours uh, avoid the sun and avoid heat and mm. the paper challenged these concepts and uh, they were felt that these concepts originally came about when botox was first introduced into practice and they don't have a lot of evidence to back them up yeah and so back in the 80s possibly possibly and uh, the feeling was from these uh, this uh, this paper was that within 10 to 15 minutes of Botox injection, it's internalized in the vesicles inside the cell. Uh, so they questioned the, um, uh, the concept of don't lie flat for a couple of hours after you have Botox. They felt that that's not going to make it diffuse further that to adjacent muscles that you want to avoid. Same with getting flushed because it it was always the thing thinking that vasodilation would potentially move the Botox. Yes, increase blood flow and flush yeah. it out of your system. But if it's internalized in the vesicle within five to ten minutes, you shouldn't have to worry about that. Right. Uh, so they can all go straight on their sunbeds after, <laughs> after, after having. The I'm Botox. not recommending that, but uh, there you go. But one study that one thing that the paper recommended is there's been some evidence to show that repeated use of the muscle immediately after in injection may help with longevity and the, the study the one of the study looked at the masseter muscle after injection with uh, toxin and when people were asked to clench their mouth for a few um, an hour after treatment the botox lasted longer okay the duration the duration of treatment lasted longer and they feel there may be some benefit to that so after you inject your frown and you, uh, you exercise the muscle and most people say oh just to help spread it about no it's not he about help spreading about it's maybe perhaps helping internalize the toxin okay so of all the aftercare advice we give possibly that one is the m I most evidence-based absolutely yeah the rest of it I, I probably still won't stop giving it just for now but it's something worth considering absolutely if you forget to give it yeah it's no biggie <laughs> great okay uh, that's that's really interesting to hear and, and, and that it's all evidence-based um i believe there was a couple of other papers one mentioning bacteria static versus again normal the, saline that may be relevant nowadays because i just he had an email from my pharmacy saying there's national shortage of bacteria static oh, saline no. yeah this is bad news <laughs> it is but it, it, that doesn't mean we can't inject using normal saline yeah. because remember that's what the manufacturers recommend we, do, yeah. uh, we use uh, bacteriostatic saline. What is bacteriostatic saline? It's just saline with a hint of uh, ethanol mm. it, to, that acts as a preservative. Now, the main advantage of using bacteriostatic saline is it doesn't hurt as much. It doesn't sting as less to inject because the pH becomes favorable and doesn't 
cause a lot of pain, okay. but it also gives it a shelf life. Yes. Um, so bacteriostatic saline is really what you want to be diluting with. Yeah. Uh, but if we do struggle to find it, you still can use normal saline. And what what was this study ab- about then? Was it about the clinical difference between? It, 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 it was challenging the manufacturers who only recommended ah. saline, uh, whereas the national the international consensus worldwide is yeah. bacteriostatic saline perhaps has more advantages than the saline. Because practically speaking, I think a lot of people, if they prescribe Botox for a, a client, they may keep it for a couple of weeks to, in case there's a top-up needed. Absolutely. So it is actually good to hear that, that clinically speaking, not that The, the general consensus from more than, not only this paper, uh, a few papers is bacteriostatic saline is what they would recommend. Fab. And then the, the oh, in fact, the last point we were going to touch on, I think we've already talked about, which is younger versus older patients in Absolutely. terms of treatments, was, which was the holistic Yes, so you need to adapt to those as you move on. Because remember, when patients, the patient that came to you a year ago is a year older. Yes. So you can't just keep injecting the same dose. Your, dose. your treatment plan should always be based on careful assessment of muscle. Yes. Okay. Well, that has been really useful. Um, so thank you very much for bringing those papers in. Thank you, Adam. Um, you are the king of academic <laughs> aesthetic medicine. <laughs> I believe you've got all sorts of papers knocking around at home. I will you? share them with you, Adam, and we, um, I'd love to come here again and we can maybe talk about other topics. Yeah, well, I thought perhaps we could talk about some of the more advanced Botox techniques Absolutely. Uh, at some point. That yes. would be really great to have you back on the show. No problems. Thank you. Right, Dr. Ahmed, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.